Uh, well, good morning. We are uh, in week two of our spring practice on reading scripture. Uh, for those of you who haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Josh Story. I serve as one of the elders here. And when I'm not doing this, uh, I actually work as a speech writer and a speaker coach, uh, primarily for those that work in tech. And the other day, I was uh, talking to a client who uh, works in finance for a pharmaceutical c- company. And he was rehearsing this presentation, and half the time, I just get really intrigued by what they're talking about. And so I started asking him these questions. I said, hey, um, how, how long does it actually take to, to get a drug to market? And he goes, oh, years, if not like over a decade. It's a long, long time. He says, and, you know, because when you think about it, like first you have to like make the drug and get it right. You know, and he's like, and assuming that you get it right the first time, which never happens, but assuming that you do, you then go test it on animals. If they respond well, you test it on humans. If they respond well, you jump through all these these regulatory hurdles and you get FDA approval, and then you got to start marketing it and seeing if doctors will actually push it or if you know pharmacies will actually push it. And so there's, there's all these things that have to happen in order to get a drug on the shelf. And I said, and how many other companies are trying to do the same thing? It was dozens. Because they're, they're all trying to do the exact same thing. We're all in this race to get this drug to market. And I said, and so, but I was like, but y'all aren't making money for like a decade, right? He was like, yeah, we have no revenue whatsoever. I said, so you're just raising money, spending it, raising money, spending it, raising money, spending it, hoping that you're the one that gets to market. And he goes, yeah. And I said, okay, so there, there are billions upon billions of dollars being spent to get one drug to market. And he says, yeah, it's crazy. I said, that is crazy. And then he says, but here's the craziest part. I was like, there's a crazier part? He goes, goes, most of the things that we're creating, most of these drugs that we're creating, we don't really need them. Most of these woes could be solved with diet and exercise. I go, what? (laughs) He goes, goes, yeah, he he goes, we exist to create things for the most part. That, that happen when people have neglected diet and exercise to the point where they need some medical intervention. He says, he says, there's a billion dollar, a multi-billion dollar industry that exists because we are really prone to neglect diet and exercise, which is the last thing I ever thought I would ever hear come out of the mouth of someone who works for a pharmaceutical company, right? But I started thinking about that. I thought, that's, that's wild because, because he's right. I mean, ever since I can remember going to a doctor, right, the, the typical prescription is very similar. Diet and exercise, right? Blood pressure is a little high, diet and exercise. Cholesterol is a little high, diet and exercise. Put on a couple pounds, diet and exercise, right? And we know this to be true. Like, we know that diet and exercise is is a healthy option. And so I, I begin to kind of process, like, wh- like, why do we tend to neglect diet and exercise the way that we do as a c- culture? And I'm sure there's a dozen reasons for it, but I think one of the things is it's very overwhelming, right? Because the, 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 the prescription sounds really simple, but the execution is actually really hard, right? I mean, just take diet, right? If a doctor says, hey, you should start eating better. It's like, uh, okay, uh, does that just mean more fruits and veggies? Or do I got to go Whole30? Do I got to go paleo, keto, vegan, carnivore? Like, I mean, where do I go? Like, what do I actually eat? And then exercise, like, can I just start walking more? Can I start jogging more? Or do I have to join a cult like CrossFit or Peloton, right? Like, I mean, where, like, like how do I actually implement this whole diet and exercise thing? Right? It's, it's, it's a very simple prescription. The execution is actually really difficult. And it's oftentimes really overwhelming. Now, I tell you that. 
Because in, in the spiritual world, there's a very similar prescription that we're, that we're oftentimes given for our sort of spiritual aches and pains. And you can probably finish my own sentence, right? It's, it's prayer and reading your Bible, right? For a lot of us, we, we grew up hearing that, that prayer and reading your Bible, like that is the diet and exercise of the spiritual life, right? A little anxious? Have you prayed about it? Have you read your Bible? I need to make a really big life decision. Well, have you prayed about it? Have you read your Bible? My kids are acting a fool. Have you prayed about it? Have you read your Bible? Right? I mean, prayer and reading your Bible is the spiritual diet and exercise. Yet, while that sounds like a very simple prescription, we, we know that the execution is actually pretty difficult, and especially when it comes to reading Scripture. I think oftentimes there, there's this sort of overwhelming nature that happens when we really think about, okay, sitting down, reading scripture, making that a habit, making that a practice in our life, it, it feels very overwhelming at times. Interestingly, uh, Barnett is a research group, and they did a poll, and they found that one in two U.S. adults believe that the Bible holds the keys to a meaningful life, which is honestly a lot higher than I would have ever thought, right? But one in two adults believe that the Bible holds the keys to a meaningful life. So we know that reading the Bible is good for us, right? Yet, only one in six adults reads their Bible every week. So there's this massive gap between what we know to be good, what we know to be nourishing for our souls, and what we actually do. So the question that I want to answer today is a very simple one. It's, what is standing between us and the nourishment that comes from Scripture? Right, because I don't think I have to tell anybody in this room that, 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 that reading the Bible um, reading God's word, if, if we truly believe that God's word is what it says it is, that, that it is the inspired word of God, that it is, it is profitable, that it is beneficial, that it, that it brings life to our souls, if we really believe those things, then we know that it's good for us, yet we don't always do it. And so I want to just walk through two hurdles that um, typically stand in between us and, and, and the fullness of spiritual nourishment that comes from reading our Bibles, and then we'll figure out how to fix it. Does that sound all right? Okay, fantastic. All right, so here's the first hurdle. The first hurdle is that you may not know how to read the Bible. You may not know how to read the Bible. Not that you may not know how to read, but you may not know how to read the Bible specifically. Now, that, that sounds insulting, and I don't mean for it to you, so let me explain what I mean. Um, let's say that I handed you a leather-bound book, and in this book is a biography of Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, a collection of Langston Hughes poems, a copy of Jim Crow laws, and Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. All of those are in this one book. And I say, hey, this is a great book. You should read it. And I gave you no context. I didn't tell you about the authors. I didn't tell you about what's happening historically. I didn't tell, tell, tell you about the different genres. I just gave you this book, and I said, read it. Now, if you read it from cover to cover, you might pick up a theme. You might pick up that this has something to do with the history of civil rights in the U.S. Maybe. But imagine if I said, hey, here's a book, and, and it really doesn't matter where you start. Just, just, just open it and read it. Find a passage. Find a couple sentences. Find a couple paragraphs. Meditate on it and, you know, and just soak it in. If that's how you approach it, odds are you're going to be utterly confused. Because you're reading a poem, and then you're reading an excerpt from a biography. You're, you're reading all of these things, and it, it might not make sense. 
But if I took a step back and I said, hey, here's this book. This is actually not just a book. It's, it's, it's a collection of writings. And I explained who Frederick Douglass was. And I explained that when Abraham Lincoln gave the second inaugural address, it was in the middle of the Civil War. And if I explained that Langston Hughes was a poet in the Harlem Renaissance, and if I explained who Martin Luther, who Martin Luther King was and where he was and, and what he was saying as he's writing from a jail cell, if I began to explain all of that stuff, then, then it's, it's going to make it a lot more richer of an experience because you actually have the context to understand what's going on. When it comes to reading scripture, oftentimes we have been told, hey, here is a book. This is a good book and you should read it. But the Bible isn't a book. The Bible is a library. It is a collection of 66 books that span wildly different genres written by 40 different authors over the course of 2,000 years that tells the exact same story or at least pieces of the same story. It is the most fascinating collection of writings the world has ever known. It is unbelievable. Yet, for us to actually know how to read it and mind the depth of it, we have to understand the genre. Because you don't read poetry the same way that you read a book of history, right? And so if we don't understand the genre or the author, who's writing this, what's the historical context, what's going on in this scene, then, then typically three things happen um, without context. And the first is this. Without context, our time feels unproductive. Our time feels unproductive. I don't know if you've ever just kind of opened up and played what I call Bible roulette, where you just kind of open up to a random page and just read the first thing. Um, Maybe you're just like, I I don't know. I think one of my favorites, imagine if you opened up to, say, 2 Kings 2, 23 through 25. You're having a quiet time. You opened it up. This is the passage that falls, and it says this. It says, he went up from there to Bethel. While he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there, he, went, he returned to Samaria. Imagine if you had no context, and you just, like, opened that up, and that was your quiet time. You're like, I mean, I guess we have been given Scott at work a hard time about the receding hairline. I guess we should maybe stop. Like, I don't know. Like, I guess we'll try again tomorrow and just see what I find. No, like, like it's, it's utterly confusing. On, on a side note, because I, I now know the question that everyone is wondering is, why is that in there? What is the context? Let me tell you. So contextually, Bethel, where uh, Elisha is, Bethel is uh, the epitome of Israel's apostasy. Few places in Israel had, had turned from God the way that Bethel had. And so uh, Elisha is a prophet meaning he is the mouthpiece of God. He, he is the physical representative of God's voice. And what you see here um, is, is not just like a, a small crew of boys. There's, there's at least 42 boys. Some, some, some scholars think upwards to 50 or 60 boys because some of them are fast enough to outrun the sheep bears, right? Um, but think about this. This is a gang. This is a small gang of boys who are from a town that, that, that scoffs at the voice of God that mock the voice of God, and they see the prophet, they see the voice of God walking down the street, and they start mocking and scoffing. And this is a lesson for the people of Bethel, that you do not mess with the voice of God. You do not mock the voice of God, right? But how would you know that? You, you have to understand 
about Bethel, you have to understand who Elisha is. You have to understand everything that's happening historically, or otherwise, it's just a really random story about a guy who seems pretty petty, right? Who just mauled a bunch of kids for no reason because he's insecure about his receding hairline. That's, that's what it sounds like, right? So when you read the Bible without context, oftentimes it just feels unproductive. And, and, and when that happens, um, best case scenario, you're just confused. Best case scenario, you're like, I don't know, this is just a weird day. I guess I'll try again tomorrow. But worst case scenario, you might read day after day or week after week, and you might walk away thinking, man, I, I guess I'm just not smart enough. I guess I'm just not spiritual enough to understand what this thing says. And so we just lay it off to the side because pff, the Bible, that's, that's for the intellectual folk. That's for the theologians. That's for the people that get it. No, that's a lie. You have all the tools at your disposal to be able to, to pull out all the nourishment of the scriptures. You just need a little bit of context. So that's the first thing that happens when we read without context. The second is that our time may be productive, but we're missing out on depth. Our time may be, produ be productive, but we might be missing out on depth. Because there are passages that, that, you, that you read, and it's clear enough to understand. You think, oh, cool, I, I, I understand what this means, and now I'm going to try to apply this to my life. But having a little bit more context, having a little bit more understanding of who the author is and what's happening, allows certain passages just to pop and, and create more just affection in our heart for the Word of God. Um, I'll, I'll use Philippians 4, 4 through 7 um, as an example. Uh, Philippians 4, 4 through 7 says this. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, right? And it's, and it's easy to understand. Like, rejoice. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious, but take everything, everything that stresses you out, all of your anxieties, and lay them before God, and there is a peace that transcends all understanding that God will give you. It's a beautiful text. But what makes this thing really pop is when you understand who is writing it and where he is writing it from. Paul is currently sitting in a Roman prison cell. And earlier in the book, he, he makes it clear that he doesn't exactly know how this is going to go down. He might die at the end of this. This is a very uncertain moment in Paul's life. And Paul has the audacity to tell the Philippian church from a jail cell, rejoice, rejoice. Even when your faith lands you in chains, rejoice. And by the way, do not be anxious about anything. The guy who doesn't know if he's going to live or die in the next few months, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything. And present your request to God. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is a powerful, powerful moment when you understand that if anyone has the right to not rejoice, it's this guy. If anyone has the right to be anxious, it's this guy. Yet he writes to the people in Philippi to say, hey, despite where I am, despite what's going on, this is how we are to behave in the Lord. This is how we are to respond because this is the God we serve, right? It's, it's deep. It's rich. It, it pulls out this other um, depth. Third, without, 
without context, we may actually misinterpret what God is trying to communicate. Um, From a a context standpoint, uh, it is really easy to just kind of reach into scripture, pull out a verse, and just kind of make what I call like a a coffee cup mug verse, right? Um, My favorite verse, because this is really low hanging fruit, this this misinterpretation doesn't really hurt anybody, uh, but Habakkuk 1.5, it says, says this. It says, And the Lord said, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Right? I've seen this on uh, mission trip shirts, actually, where people say, hey, Guys, look, look around, wonder, be, be astounded. God is doing something in our day that we wouldn't even believe if told. Right? It's beautiful. It's a beautiful sentiment. Until you read the rest of the verse. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, which is the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward, and they gather captives like sand. Contextually, the work that is going to be done in their day that they would not believe if told is the Babylonians are going to own them. I don't know about you. I'm not praying that on a mission trip, right? Like, I don't want God doing that work in my day. I just, I, I just really don't, right? Now, again, silly example, not, not going to hurt anyone, right? But it's so easy to, to pull things out of context and not understand all of the things that's happening around it. And we misinterpret what God is saying, right? But there are moments in time when if we are not careful, we can pull passages out of context and use that inadvertently to wound people, right? Um, the Bible is, is referred to in Scripture as the sword of the Spirit. And I think about swords. Um, swords in and of themselves are not dangerous, right? You know, if a sword is laying here on the stage, that sword can't hurt me, right? It's just an inanimate object. It's just laying there, right? Um, swords become dangerous when a reckless swordsman picks it up, right? Swords have this unbelievable ability in, in, in the hands of, of a good swordsman to preserve life, to protect life, to defend life. But in the hands of someone who is reckless, that same instrument can wound and kill, right? There are a lot of people who handle this in a really reckless fashion, who will take the sword of the Spirit and they'll just start swinging it around. And, and oftentimes the way that happens is they just take verses out of context. Um, I was mentoring a, a college student a while ago who, who had this experience and he was kind of processing it. He had, uh, he had gone to a summer program through a um, campus organization and that summer, he had gotten saved. It, it, it was an unbelievable experience. Owed a, a ton of gratitude to this specific ministry who had helped him see Jesus in a new way. Well, that next summer, uh, the same organization asked if, if he wanted to go back on that same, same uh, trip. And he felt this deep conviction from the Lord to, to, to go home. He said, you know, my family has only known the non-Jesus following version of me. He says, I really want my, my family to, to, to get to see who I am with Jesus 
in me, and, and, and I want to represent Christ to my family. I, I want them to know the love of Christ that, that I finally know. I, 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 my heart just beats for my family to know him. And so this um, person in this organization walked up to him and said, hey, man, I, I think you should really come with us this summer to do this kind of uh, summer camp thing. And he said, man, I, you know, I, I really feel like I'm, I just need to go home and witness to my family. And this guy pulled out a verse uh, out of scripture and said, well, you know, the Bible says that our hearts are deceitful. And so I, I think you should really check yourself because I think what God is calling you to do is to come with us. And he's like, I'm going to go home. And it actually severed his, his relationship with that, that organization and they just didn't really want to hang out with him a whole lot. And so he's sitting with me and, he, and he's like, He's like, was I in sin for going home? I was like, no, no. Someone took a verse out of context and used it against you, used it to push an agenda. I was like, and my heart breaks that you had to, to spend six months to a year sort of wrestling with what's actually going on here. I said, that is, a, that is a mishandling of the word of God. And I was like, I'm so, so sorry, right? When we don't take into the context of, of what we're reading, um, it allows us to misinterpret. And sometimes that's just silly ways where, oh, I, I just missed the point. But other times it, it can be really wounding for those that we're interacting with. So this is the first reason uh, why we may not be experiencing the fullness of, uh, of spiritual nourishment, right? Is that we just don't know how to read the Bible. We, we are reading this, um, or let me say it like, like this. A lot of us have been taught to read the Bible literally, which is good, but we haven't been taught how to read it literarily, right? That, that we, we haven't been taught how to understand um, where these 66 books fall, what genre they are, who is writing it, what's the context, and when we get to understand those things, it, it makes the, the scriptures pop in a brand new way. And so in a second, I'm going to give you a few resources if you're like, I would love to learn how to read the Bible in a much more kind of accurate way. Fantastic. Hold on, and I'll give you some resources in just a second. But here's the second reason why um, we don't always get the full nourishment. Here's, here's the second hurdle, if you will, is that you may be looking for yourself in the text rather than Jesus. That you may be looking for yourself in the text rather than Jesus. And what I mean is this. Um, we live in a very consumeristic Christian culture where we oftentimes approach the Bible um, thinking, what can it do for me? Right? I'm going to open up this text and, and you know, I'm going to read it because it's the Bible and it's good for me. Right? It's my peas and carrots, if you will. But, 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 but I'm, I'm reading it um, thinking, how, how can I apply this to my job? How can I apply this to my relationships? How can I apply this to this decision that's coming up? How can I apply this to my parenting? How can I apply this to my anxiety? How can I apply this to my relationship status? We, and we think I'm, I'm reading the Bible as, uh, as something that, that is meant to, to, to help me and to shape me. And, and I'm coming at it from a very consumeristic standpoint. And to be clear, I absolutely think there are moments in time because we have a good, kind, gracious, personal God, I think there are moments in time when, when, when we are reading the scriptures and the Holy Spirit graciously illuminates a passage that speaks to our soul in a way that just feels 
like water in the desert, right? I think that, that is the grace of God. In fact, I'll give you an example. There's not a slide for this because this is a, a longer psalm, but um, I, was in a, I was in a spot in life um, a few years ago where I was really discouraged. Um, my, the way that I'm wired, if, if you ever hear a story about Josh Story getting out of ministry, um, it's not because I went on some bender. Uh, it's because I got really discouraged. Um, that, that's just where I'm weak, is I just get tired and discouraged, and I think, I don't really want to do this anymore. I still love Jesus. I just, I'm just tired, right? And I get really exhausted and really discouraged in the moments when it feels like following Jesus is all in vain. And I was in a spot where I was looking around, and I was seeing folks who, who, who cared very little uh, about living a life that looked like Christ, and it, it just felt like they were winning, like they were just winning, and being a Christian meant that you just lost, and you lost over and over, and it just really felt like being a Christian meant that you were a loser. And I stumbled upon this, this uh, passage, this Psalm 73. It says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out with, with, with fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts throughout the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is, is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. While all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. When I read that passage, it, it felt like that was for me. It felt like in, in a moment when I was really questioning, God, is it worth following you? I'm losing and everyone who doesn't follow you, it just seems like they're winning. 
You read this text, and what you find is a guy who says, I, I get it. I get it. It, it. it does appear that way, doesn't it? But who wins in the end? God does. So draw near to me. Stay near to me. That, that's what I heard. And, and this is a psalm that, that will always forever be embedded in my mind as this moment when it felt like when I was calling out, when I was crying out to God, God, God where are you? What are you doing? That, that God met me specifically where I was. Now, with that being said, there are moments when I think God does speak to us in very specific ways. However, the Bible is not a self-help book. The Bible does not exist to make your marriage better. The Bible does not exist. Can it? Yeah, absolutely. But it does not exist to serve as a book of tips and tricks that, that somehow make you better at life. The Bible exists to tell you the story of Jesus, period. And what happens is that when you and I approach the scriptures, purely looking for what can I gain out of this? How can I find myself in this text? We eventually put it down because it doesn't do what we want it to do because it's not designed to. It is not designed to give you tips and tricks on the reg all day, every day. It is designed to point you to Jesus. It's designed for you to understand who your God is, what he has done on your behalf, how he has wired the world to work, how he loves you. Like That is what it's designed to do. And the beauty of it is that when we approach a text, not looking to find ourselves in the text, but looking to find Jesus in the text, it is exhilarating because Jesus is everywhere. He is literally everywhere, especially in the places that we might not even think that he is. Let me give you an example. So I, I realize we're going kind of scripture drunk today, but we're almost done. Um, Exodus 17, 1 through 7 says, says this. It says, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? Did, did, did you bring us to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to him, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So, Really quick, they're in the desert. Um, they, they've already seen God do unbelievable miracles. But they're in the desert. They are quick to forget the goodness of God, and, and there's no water, and they're dying of thirst. And they're like, dude, why did you bring us out here? Did you literally bring us out here so we could die of thirst? And God says, I want you to go to Horeb. Now, Horeb um, is, is another word for Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is known in these texts as the mountain of God. This is a very significant place. Um, it was where uh, Moses first met God in the burning bush. It's where God gave Moses the, the Ten Commandments. And so Horeb, that, that mountain, is designed to be a picture of God. God as the rock, Mount Horeb. He says, I want you to go to Mount Horeb. 
I want you to take your staff and I want you to strike the rock and water. I don't know if you know how rocks work, um, but, but water is going to flow out. Water doesn't flow out of rocks. That, that, that's the point, right? Um, and water will flow out of this rock and it will save the people of Israel from death. John 19. Since it was the day of preparation, this is the crucifixion of Jesus. And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled, that not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him with whom they have pierced. The story about Moses on the surface looks like a story of, of God just doing a cool miracle in the desert. But it is a foreshadowing. It is God saying, I want you to strike the rock, the mountain of God, and water is going to flow, temporarily saving the people of Israel. But one day, my son is going to hang on a cross, and they are going to strike the rock that is Christ. They are going to pierce his side, and what is going to flow out of it? Water. And when that water flows, that signifies not a, a temporary salvation, but an eternal salvation. That this is the once and for all salvation that comes from Jesus, right? Doesn't that stir your heart a little bit more than a bunch of tips and tricks? The scripture is full of these connections. All of these moments where everything points back to Jesus because that's what the story is about. The story is about Jesus. I know we're out of time, so let me do a quick little recap for us. What typically stands in the way of us experiencing the, the full nourishment that comes with Scripture is one, we just don't know how to read it. We just haven't been taught. That's no one's fault. We just haven't been, been taught. But second, we try to find ourselves in the text rather than looking for Jesus. So what do we do with that? Three really quick applications. First, have a plan. Right? Um, have a plan. Uh, no more Bible roulette where we just kind of open up and just see what's on the page and... Um, Spend some time like mapping through, okay, like what do I want to read? What do I want to study? Is it a book? Is it a series of books? Is it a theme? And I want to find this theme all throughout scripture. There are so many resources available to actually um, help you understand uh, certain kind of plans. If you don't have a plan, we actually currently have a read through the year and a read through the Bible in the year plan. Um, Holden can hook you up with that. Um, but come in having a plan. It, it makes your time a lot more pr productive. Second, uh, is invest in some resources. Uh, I cannot recommend an ESV study Bible enough. Um, uh, every, or at, at, at the beginning of every book, it, it walks you through the author, the history, the context, um, an outline, all of this stuff. It has all these little nuggets in the sides that, that, that helps you just kind of understand what's happening in the text. It's an invaluable resource. Um, 
There's, there's another book called How to Read the Bible for All, for All It's Worth by a guy named Gordon Fee. It's kind of the sem- seminary gold, gold standard in, in a lot of ways of just a really basic book that helps you understand here's how you read the Bible. Here's you know, a few ways to kind of understand uh, what's going on um, in the text. And then lastly there, uh, if you are reading a certain book, like let's say that you want to really study the book of Luke and understand all that's going on in the book book of Luke. A commentary can be really helpful in kind of talking through it. And because you can't make this up, there is a website called bestcommentaries.com. It's that easy. Bestcommentaries.com. And they refer to themselves as the rotten tomatoes of biblical commentaries, right? And they rank them and you can kind of go and like, and they link all of them to an Amazon page. And so it's an unbelievable resource just to kind of understand more of uh, what's going on in the text. And then lastly is this. Read out of joy rather than obligation. Read out of joy rather than obligation. Um, we believe with all of our hearts that if you spend time in the scriptures, if, if reading the scriptures becomes a practice, if, if that is a rhythm in your life, it will nourish your soul in really profound ways. But just like diet and exercise, if you just do it to check a box, it's not going to last very long, Right? This is not a New Year's resolution. This isn't a thing that we just kind of want to do for, you know, a month and a half until we get tired of it and we gave it the old college college try, right? We want this to be a rhythm, a practice in your life. And like any sort of diet diet or exercise, if you just do it to do it and just grit your teeth to get through it because it's good for you, it's not going to last. But if you fall in love with the scriptures... If you find that, man, I, 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 I want to be in the scriptures. I want to be reading because I love Jesus, and it just draws it. And I just love to, to see these deep, rich truths. Um, and it transforms our life. It transforms our life. Um, with that being said, we all have these moments in our life when spiritually we just feel dry. And it's not lost on me that, that you might be in a season where maybe you're in a season where you are so amped and you're so ready to read the scriptures and let's go. But for some of us in the, in the room, we're tired. We've been following Jesus for a long time. It's like, man, I've read a lot of scripture. I know the stories. I know what's going on. And if I'm honest, I, I pick up my Bible and I look at it. I don't even know if I want to read it anymore. If that's you, I get it. <laughs> I absolutely understand. My challenge for you would be just try. See what happens if we make this a rhythm, make it a practice, and ask the Lord to speak to you. In those moments, say, God, I don't want to read. I don't even know if I believe this stuff. And ask the Lord to speak, because what I've seen over and over is the Holy Spirit graciously illuminates passages of scripture that bring nourishment to our souls. Let me pray. Father, you are you are gracious and kind. God, my, my hope and my prayer is that we are a people who um, who don't read your word because we should because it's good for us or because it's what good Christians do. But because we have a a deep love for you. And we want to know what you say. We want to know what 
what you have for us. And that we want to hear from you. That we are people that long to hear the voice of God. And so we run to the words of God to hear his voice. So God, will you speak to us? Will you graciously illuminate your word to nourish our souls? For my brothers and sisters in the room who are tired, who are really exhausted, who feel like they are in a dry and weary land, God, will you nourish them? May your word be like water to their souls. It's our Sunday we pray. Amen.